Hey babes, Nicole here, back with another narration. This episode is going to be a continuation of the narration we last released. Um, so if you haven't listened to the first part of I Shouldn't Have Returned to the Little House on Briar Rose Drive, stop right here, go back, and listen to the first part because you will want to know what's going on in the story. It is fantastic. It is written by Nikki Esposito. Um, you can find her on Reddit at N-I-C-K-Y underscore X-X. Please go check her out. Um, her stories are phenomenal and we are big fans. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy the second half of I Shouldn't Have Returned to the Little House on Briar Rose Drive. An hour later, Alicia had left for the USC Law Library and I'd tried and failed to numb my twisted thoughts with Netflix. When that didn't work, I decided I needed a shower, a long, calming shower. Letting the water run until it warmed, I stared at my reflection in the little cabinet mirror. My frizzy, mouse-brown hair stuck out at odd angles. I'd been tugging at it in my sleep. There were dark circles under my eyes. Fuck, I really needed that shower. I raised my leg to step into the tub. The water was thick and pomegranate red. I screamed, stumbled, crab-walked towards the door. Blood, flowing out of the faucet, splashing against the shiny white finish, trickling down the drain. I groped for the doorknob and half-crawled, half-fell through the door. Naked, heart-racing, I cowered on the floor. I pinched myself. I breathed deeply, waiting for the stench of Colonel Lewis's compost heap to waft through my nostrils, waiting for Mathilde and her answering machine voice. Or worse, a reappearance of the purple that launched poisonous darts. Not real, not real, not real. But the smell didn't come. Mathilde didn't come. And apparently the chocolate milk did its job because the closet monster stayed where it was. I looked at my hands. Adult hands. Adult legs. I was awake. And there was blood in my tub. Shaking, I stood up. Gingerly limbs heavy and pulsing, the sound of water hitting porcelain somehow amplified. I took timid steps until the running faucet came into view. Ordinary clear tap water rushed down the drain. I put my hand under it, watched the translucent liquid roll off the contours. I decided I really didn't want to take that shower. I changed in my room. My little brown journal was still on the bed. I stared at it. The monsters I'd seen in my previous nightmares had been illustrated there. It was logical to assume we would have included the sickly blue-black humanoids as well. My phone rang. I recognized Luke's number as I reached to answer it. My grandma told me you went to see Tommy's mom. His voice was cold, annoyed. Luke. Carol Lou does the shopping for my grandma. He cut me off. She kept blabbing about what a lovely young lady you've grown up to be. I felt really bad, I told him. Mrs. Lou was always really nice to me. Why are you so pissed? Because you're reopening old wounds. I've spent years getting over Micah. I spent six months getting over Tommy. They're gone. And you going around playing Veronica fucking Mars isn't going to change that. I'd considered telling him about my encounter with Travis and the Ouija board. I knew I should tell him I'd hallucinated blood coming out of my faucet. But faced with his accusatory tone, I decided firmly against either. Listen, Luke, I said directly. This has nothing to do with you. I wanted to talk to Mrs. Lou. That's it. And it was actually helpful for what I've been going through. Tommy had nightmares before he died, too. Tommy was a manic-depressive self-medicating with heroin. Luke's voice was calm now, therapeutic, condescending. And you're a schizophrenic 
who needs to be thinking about all the scary dreams as a symptom, not as some metaphor for reality. See a doctor. Check your meds. They're supposed to be blocking the ghosties and ghoulies in your head. He kept talking, but I'd stopped listening. Because all of a sudden, I understood the meaning of the phrase, stop blocking me. It was a Friday, one of those perfect Fridays late in April when the sky hangs low like an unbroken sheet of turquoise and everything is green and blooming and vibrating with promise. The promise of a glittering, precious weekend lounging lazy and long. The promise of summer vacation so tantalizingly within reach. I stood in Luke's bedroom, posing in the mirror on his closet door. I ran my fingers through my hair, creating a slight crackle as dried goo-coated chunks separated. Rough, mismatched sections of my hair were distinctively tinged with red. My idea had worked. Sort of. Luke had taken to spiking his hair with manic panic gel borrowed from Tommy, and I'd wanted streaks ever since I saw them on a model in my Girl's Life magazine. I smiled at myself, then cringed. My mom's gonna shit a brick. Luke, cross-legged on his Power Rangers bedspread, grinned at me. Tell her it's temporary. My attention shifted to Luke's bookshelf. It was a behemoth of a thing, extending nearly to the ceiling, and it housed a collection best digested in short, well-spaced viewings. There were textbooks, literature and life science and world history, which I recognized from school, shuffled with the tomes of geometry and physics and mechanical engineering he'd brought home from Smart Kid Summer Camp. Then there were rows of paperbacks, titles cutting across their spines in harsh, jagged fonts. True crime. Luke's favorite. One lay face-up, displaying black-and-white photos of a semi-attractive couple. Beyond Belief, the book was called. I held it up. Was this the one where they killed their daughter and shoved her in the floorboards? Uh, no. That's the one about Ian Brady and Myra Hindley, Luke said. They tortured and killed, like, five kids for fun in England. Oh. I put the book down. Secretly, I was still a little scared of Luke's books, though I constantly feigned nonchalance as he rattled off grisly details about the unsolved bloodbath he was obsessed with this week. The cover of another book caught my eye, a large picture of a wide-eyed toddler. What's this one about? Luke's eyes lit up. That one's interesting. It's about daycare sex abuse scandals in the 80s that were, like, all bullshit. It talks about how easy it is to induce mass hysteria by... We were interrupted by the doorbell. Then the shuffling of Luke's grandmother's slippers on the shag carpet as she rose to answer the door. It's probably Micah, Luke said, slight disappointment in his tone. Yeah, I said. He's going to want to talk about the great bagworm. He says he's got some cool idea about how we can break through her exoskeleton. Great. Luke did not sound enthusiastic. We'd have to cut our mass hysteria and serial killer talk short because Micah was a total baby about that stuff. I didn't want to admit it to myself, but I was disappointed, too. I liked being alone with Luke. He made me feel special. Like when we were together, the world was richer and brighter, and I was somehow a more substantial part of it. Heavy footsteps, then both Tommy and Micah pushed through the doorway of Luke's bedroom. Tommy, dressed in baggy jeans and a black FUBU t-shirt, displayed a giant, goofy smile. Micah hung back a bit, hands in the pockets of his red sweatshirt. "'Guys!' Tommy said excitedly. "'Guys!' I've got, like, the most awesome news ever. Your balls finally dropped? Luke said mockingly. I swear I will clothesline you. What's your news, Tommy? I cut in, derailing the inevitable display of testosterone-fueled immaturity. You know my cousin Lisa? Tommy said. The one who works at the Hollywood Bowl. She says she can get us tickets to the Lincoln Park concert. Are you shitting me? That's awesome! 
I'd never been to a concert before. A few girls in my class had gone to see Christina Aguilera when she'd been in town months before, and Lacey Chung still wouldn't shut up about it. Micah, however, didn't look nearly as excited as Tommy, Luke, or I was. "'Why is your hair orange?' he asked me. "'It's red,' I said defensively. Luke, to use some of Tommy's manic panic. "'Oh,' Micah frowned. He'd cut his hair short at the beginning of the year so he could spike it like Luke and Tommy did, but the gel never sat right with his chocolate-brown curls. He'd ended up with an unruly bubble, looking less Billy Joe Armstrong than Justin Timberlake struck by lightning. Tommy stifled a laugh. "'You look like Tony the Tiger.' I tossed a pillow at him. "'Shut it, dweeb!' He threw the pillow back at me, which prompted Luke to play-tackle him onto his bed, and after a bit of roughhousing, the four of us all settled on the floor to discuss how we'd talk our respective parents into letting us go to the Lincoln Park concert. Micah kept on looking over at me, and I noticed him scowling, as though my stiff, uneven red tresses were something horribly offensive. After apologizing repeatedly and crossed my heart and hoped to die promising to call the psychiatrist as soon as he hung up, I managed to get Luke off the phone. Then I lay down on my bed, picked up my journal, and read the whole thing cover to cover. It was, in its entirety, the blather of preteens who'd watched Lord of the Rings too many times. The four grand adventurers, Tommy, Micah, Luke, and me, were on a quest to save our town from the demon who lived in the forest. Because of this, his henchmen were trying to kill us. In order to defeat the demon, we had to defeat a series of henchmen, each of which would leave us with a weapon of some sort. The Droxies, who liked dark places and shiny things. The bagworms, who lived in the sand in Alistair Park. The antwalkers, tree-climbing creatures who ate souls. The antagonist of my most recent dream. They had been Tommy's idea. I remembered a hybrid of the Dementors from Harry Potter in some disturbing documentary he'd seen about Hiroshima and the atom bomb. We'd gotten as far as collecting supplies. We'd armed ourselves with a dagger made of polymer clay, or indestructible magic foam, as I'd so blatantly named it a karate staff borrowed from Micah's sister, and a steak knife nicked from my kitchen. A little scary. And we were saying the final chant of power on the eve of our great quest. Then the journal stopped. I mentally berated myself for not writing down dates as Matilde had with her drawings, but I guessed that the quest was planned for around the same time Micah disappeared. I walked through my house like wandering about a graveyard. Blood in the tub, scratches on the closet door, what disturbing imagery would I uncover next? I remembered Travis's Ouija board, how the planchard had moved like a small animal beneath my fingers. How did it all connect? It had to connect. It had to mean something. Alicia came home. We went out to dinner. I didn't bring up Micah again. That night before bed, I flushed a single orange pill down the toilet. If Mathilde wanted to play, we were going to play. I found her in Colonel Lewis's yard. The smell of moldy vegetables and rotting grass hung in the air but it didn't bother me anymore. The huge oak tree shaded us. The chassis on blocks sat far below. We were climbing a pile of cinder blocks, tall as a mountain reaching forever into the sky. She climbed beside me, pink dress flapping in the breeze, ice blonde hair falling over her porcelain cheeks and big blue eyes. You're dead, Mathilde, I said to her, as though this were a point that needed to be made. I know, she said. I reached for a block above my head, pulled and squared my feet. She climbed even with me. Is Micah dead too? She smiled playfully and gave me a flinching half-shrug, like a child with a secret she's not supposed to tell. I realized then that she had freckles, that her skin didn't glow, that her mouth moved. 
and that she was talking to me in a shrill little girl's voice, not a robotic monotone. "'What do you need to tell me?' I asked. "'Is it about Micah?' She shrugged and looked away. We climbed in silence, up and up and up the cinderblock hill. Finally she spoke again. Two twin skeletons on a warm spring day, among the festering ruins children laugh and play. Empty eyes and gumless teeth, he waits for you in a room beneath. I nodded. It was a cute rhyme. There was a second verse. You have a journey, a harrowing quest. If you do what I say, an enemy you'll best. And at that, by the logic that only makes sense within a dream, I knew what I had to do. I had to complete the quest of the four grand adventurers. The demon trapped Micah. It had hidden him away for fifteen years, and I was tasked with his rescue. Mathilde's rhyme was more than a rhyme, more than a silly jump-rope chant like the ones I'd recited to her years before to make her laugh. It was a riddle. It was a clue. "'What do you mean?' I demanded. "'Do I need to go to a place?' But Mathilde had overtaken me. Her ankle hung at my eye level as she pulled herself further into the sky, into the clouds. Eager to catch up with her, I haphazardly reached and grabbed hold without looking. The cinder block wiggled under my weight and my stomach dropped. My handhold came loose. I lurched, lost my footing, and fell backwards, loose cement toppling after me. June 9, 2017. I woke with a start and a headache. Immediately, I grabbed the nearest piece of paper I could find, my old journal, and scribbled down the rhyme from my dream. Two twin skeletons on a warm spring day. Among the festering ruins, children laugh and play. Festering ruins was easy. Colonel Lewis's yard, which hosted both a compost pot of rotting organic matter and the remnants of a forgotten construction project, where my friends and I used to play. Twin skeletons, Tommy and Micah? Maybe, but that didn't exactly help me. No, twin metaphorical skeletons. The only two houses, exact doubles, that remained as they had been, both about to be torn down, Colonel Lewis's and mine. I ignored the part about empty eyes and gumless teeth. Waits for you in a room beneath. We didn't have a basement, and neither did Colonel Lewis. We'd had a bunker. My dad built a shed over it. Alicia left early. She'd planned on spending another day at the library, so I was home alone. Still, though, I felt almost embarrassed as I approached my dad's rickety old shed in the backyard. My psychotic break was already beginning. My palms were sweating, I could feel blood pounding in my wrists, and the vice grip on my sinuses hadn't abated. I flushed my morning Haldol dosage, and I could feel myself sliding into withdrawal. But as I jimmied the rusty old lock with a bobby pin, I would testify I was still thinking like a logical adult. Like a logical adult embarking on a scavenger hunt for a monster-fighting weapon dictated by a ghost girl she saw in a dream. The shed was a small square room, maybe ten by ten, with a work table running the length of the wall opposite the door. Above the work table were hooks and shelves, below drawers and cabinets with closed wooden doors. It was completely empty. Not so much as a spare screwdriver had been left in view. I cautiously climbed down the three squeaky wooden steps to the sunken concrete floor. Maybe the weapon was in one of the cabinets, whatever the weapon was. I opened one cabinet, then the next, then tugged open and shut the drawers. The only thing I found was a nest of disturbingly large earwigs. Then the door slammed shut. I jumped. I was engulfed in total blackness. My pulse, already strong and rapid, amplified to hammer strength. I turned around and around, batting the air, engulfed in frantic fear. Stumbled up the stairs. My hand found the doorknob. I turned and turned, pushed, pounded, screamed and screamed. I was trapped. A flutter of small wings. I turned around and froze. 
By the light creeping in through the holes in the wood, I could barely make out the workbench or the walls. Something small and gray blocked the light, darted away. All of a sudden, the room felt smaller. The air felt heavier. I wasn't alone. Something was crawling up my leg. Something with weight. Tiny hands. I jumped. There was a tug on my hair, on my shirt, a nudge at my back, and then another bump and another, and then... With a sickening surge of anxiety, I realized the sources of those bumps were hanging on to me, crawling up my torso, something warm and sticky pressed against the skin of the back of my neck. I shook, jumped up and down, fell to the ground and rolled. There were more and more of them, heavier and heavier, climbing on top of each other, swarming, smothering me like an itching, creeping blanket. I rolled onto my back. I caught the light seeping in. I saw a gray gargoyle face, sunken black eyes fangs, small wings batting, hovering directly over my face. I lifted my torso, then was immediately and roughly slammed back down like an anvil had been dropped on my chest. The second before the light was blotted out, I understood why. Hundreds of them, thick as a cloud, huddling together, others' wings folded, clinging to me like cockroaches. I thrashed violently, red, blinding pain, fireworks behind my eyelids. I'd hit my head on the lowest step, arms flailing wildly reaching, my right hand collided with something solid, something metallic. The second burst of pain cut through my panic and jolted my mind back into logical working order. I remembered my journal, Tommy's drawing. They like dark enclosed spaces. They lure their prey in. They're afraid of. With a dramatic swing, I dislodged the droxies from my right arm. I grabbed, crushed, flung. Something sharp clamped down on my hand, paws against my jugular vein. I closed my eyes tightly, feeling their tiny fingers on my cheeks, a sickening buzz in my ears, another violent thrash. My right hand was free. I reached into my back pocket, I grabbed my phone, I groped with my thumb. I don't know how long I pressed the home button on my iPhone before I realized the buzzing had stopped and itchy little digits were no longer clung to me. I opened my eyes, I sat up, madly surveying the shed with my blue-green beam of light. I was alone. The door creaked open when I turned the knob. Had it actually been locked, or in my paranoid haze had I somehow been rendered incapable of opening a door? I examined my right hand. No blood, no broken skin, not so much as a red mark. I remembered the solid metal object my right hand had collided with. Leaving the shed door open, I clambered back down, knelt on the concrete floor, turned on the flashlight on my phone, and illuminated the crawl space behind the stairs. Nestled amongst sawdust and thick cobwebs was a small, forgotten shovel. There were dead earwigs in my hair. I wanted to shower, but the faucet was running blood again. Instead, I took some aspirin to dull the crushing pain that shot from my sinuses straight through the back of my skull, lay down in bed, and tried to sleep. But every time I closed my eyes, I'd feel the droxies crawling on me, the wasp-like buzzing of their wings echoing in my ears. I sat up, picked the little shovel up off the ground, and turned it over in my hands. It was about three feet long, the metal head turned white and brown with rust and calcium and mold. My weapon my demon-slaying scepter. I really had no idea what Matilde expected me to do with it. The slam of the front door woke me up. Maybe woke me up. Because I'm not sure whether I were laying in my bed with the lights off, the door closed, the shades drawn, and my eyes fastidiously shut or actually sleeping. The brash, violent knocks on my closet door came and went. The first in the series would jostle me awake. I'd shoot upright to make sure the wooden dowel was still blocking the sliding door and the line of chocolate milk mix remained untouched then collapse, turn over, and cover my ears. Help me, Ansley, please! Come save me! 
Micah's screams began with the second or third round of knocks, desperate, life-pleading cries, becoming more and more animalistic the more I ignored them. Heavy breathing, then high-pitched strider, then silence. I smelled rotting vegetables, sweet mold, cut grass. Mathilde was there. Might have been there. She was sitting in the corner of my room playing with the shag carpet. I remember staring into her eyes. I was getting a little sick of her, honestly. If she was going to give me rhyming cryptic clues, I wish she'd just get on with it. But it was Alicia, finally, who roused me. The front door slammed as she entered. I heard her padding over the shag carpet turning on the kitchen light. My room was gray. Little peels of sunlight cut through the blinds. I pushed the shovel under my bed and found my phone. 5.45. I must have slept because I'd been in bed for nearly seven hours. I had three missed calls, all from Luke. He answered on the first ring. Anne's? Hey, I'm glad you called. His voice was pleasant, inviting. What's up? Um, I just wanted to apologize for yesterday, he said shyly. I shouldn't have freaked out on you like that. I have no right to tell you who you're allowed to talk to. It's fine, I said. I get it. You don't want me to obsess. You hungry? he asked. I've been in the lab at UCLA all day and I'm starving. I was hungry. The headache I'd nursed all morning had dulled, but I felt unglued, lightheaded. I couldn't look at anything for too long before it would halo. I put my hands in my pockets, balled them, crossed my arms. I was suddenly very aware of my fingers. I needed food, and I didn't trust myself behind the wheel. Luke picked me up in his old Toyota. We went to the In-N-Out in the next town over. Luke was in a good mood. He told me stories about the research project he was working on for the summer, something about sleep disorders, and the crazy subjects who'd volunteered for the experiment. I didn't pick up much of it. Sometime between climbing into shotgun and the drive through my hands had started shaking and the temperature increased about 20 degrees. I was concentrating so hard on stilling my hands I didn't notice where we were until Luke pulled into the parking lot of Alistair Park. I thought we could have a picnic, he said. It's such a nice day and I haven't actually sat down here in years. I didn't know how to argue without sounding like a freak, so I followed him to an empty picnic table. It couldn't be so bad. It was still light out and children still ran and screamed on the play structure while their parents subversively shared cigarettes. The food helped. I mellowed out a little, became capable of paying attention to what Luke was saying, regained the ability to communicate like an adult. Listen, Ansley, Luke said. I get it. You're back here. You're seeing all these places again. You want to talk about Micah. You want closure. So have at it. Ask me whatever you want. I thought about Micah's screams, about Mathilde, the shovel, the quest, about Micah's little red sweater shoved in a crawl space and forgotten. What was it like around here? I asked him, after Micah died. Like, how did people react? Luke closed his eyes, opened them, and ran a hand over his face. Right after, this whole city became the Twilight Zone. People were terrified, you know? All of a sudden, there were parents hanging around school, cops hanging around everywhere. I once saw this woman throw a shit fit because she lost her kid for two minutes at Walgreens. They found him hanging around the next aisle over. How about at school? How did all the kids take it? Luke exhaled slowly. Everyone was crying. Even kids who didn't know Micah got really emotional because it was their first actual experience of death, you know? And not like the death of an old person. Another kid who was murdered. I shuddered. 
I recalled those days, lying on my new bed in my new room in Miami, repeating the words to myself over and over in my head. Micah is dead. Micah was murdered. Micah is dead. And I'd missed Luke. I'd missed him so much it ached. What was it like for you? I asked him. He frowned, scrunched up his face like my query was something he'd never considered. For the first time, his eyes left me, focused on a point far away. Lonely he finally said. Behind me, in the high grass separating us from the softball diamond, something moved. I glanced over my shoulder and caught a glimpse of a black paw. Luke was still talking. Tommy's parents took him to Taiwan for the summer. Everyone else was really weird around me, probably because they knew Micah had been my friend. I spent all my time locked in my room, reading all those books I had about murders. My attention was commandeered by the creature moving through the foliage behind me. I risked another look. A blue-black, faceless head poked out of the yellowed thicket. Two thick, clay-like paws, twisted, wrinkled shoulders, black hole of a mouth round and vibrating. It shifted its head slightly like adjusting a compass, calibrating, hunting its prey with some stronger sense to supplant its missing eyes. And you okay? I turned back to Luke. He couldn't see what I saw. A short distance away, the children obliviously continued their tag game. Sorry, I said. My hands were shaking again. I wondered if he noticed. Something cold and wet brushed against my wrist. The ant walker crouched immediately behind me. Its long, black tongue hung out of its mouth. Almost dog-like, it nuzzled against my hand. It raised a toeless, flat paw. In daylight awake, I could see veins and liver spots. I stood up, edged away. Luke was taking a swig of his soda. Calmly, cautiously, I walked to his side of the bench. The sun's in my eyes, I said. Red and blue lights and the wail of a siren. A police car flew down Fifth Avenue. The ant walker froze. Back arched, tongue dangling dumbly, its blue-black flesh trembled. Another siren, louder, lower. The twisted humanoid legs splayed and wobbled, readjusted themselves awkwardly, then the thing raised one vibrating appendage and pawed at its own face. As a yawling red ladder truck came into view, the disoriented ant walker turned itself around and lumbered away, back into the tall, dry grass. When I was sure it was gone, I noticed how close to me Luke was sitting. I told you how I went out looking for Micah with my magnifying glass, right? He smiled at me indulgently. I think I was the only person in town who honestly thought he was still alive. It might have been those words, or it might have been the warmth of his leg pressed against mine, but I suddenly wanted to be even closer to Luke. Affection, arousal, washed over me like a steam bath. I have another question. Shoot. Did you... like me back then? I started. Did you have a crush on me? Luke gave me a sidelong glance, then he burst out laughing. And of course I had a thing for you. Every guy in school had a thing for you. Funny, likes video games, Latina. You were like the pubescent fantasy girl. That was bullshit. I'd been one of the guys back then, too much of a messy tomboy to stir 12-year-old loins. If I really had been some sort of pedestrian preteen Jennifer Lopez, I think I would have noticed. But Luke held fast to his bullshit, so I kissed him, tasting the flecks of salt at the corners of his mouth. Luke's bedroom hadn't changed much in 15 years. He had switched out the Power Rangers comforter, thankfully, because it would have been weird to be naked underneath it. Luke dozed beside me, rolled over facing the wall. 
His grandmother was gone for the day, he'd insisted, his hand groping under my shirt. She was out with his aunt, and they wouldn't be back until later that night. Quietly, slowly, so as not to wake him, I fished my panties off the floor and slid into them. My bra ended up slung over a science fair trophy on his dresser. As I plodded barefoot across the floor to retrieve it, Luke's Leviathan bookshelf caught my eye. The rows of paperback true crime novels were still there. The elementary school textbooks had been replaced with well-worn medical literature. There were also several framed photographs. Baby Luke swaddled in a ducky blanket, asleep in his beautiful young mother's arms. A prom photo. Apparently Luke had gone with Madison Wong. A blurry, candid shot with a backdrop of brown hills and a dusky sky. Luke, Tommy, and me. A creak of springs. I turned around. Luke was awake, tugging on his boxers. He looked up at me and smiled. I can't believe I just slept with Ansley Vasquez. I snorted. Was I on your bucket list? He swung his legs over the side of his bed, hopped down, and came up behind me. I felt his arm around my neck, his fingers sliding over my nipples, ribcage, belly, then under the elastic waistband of my underwear. I jerked away playfully. Seriously? You want to go again? Is that a rhetorical question? I wiggled out of his grasp and picked up the photo of us. Is this from that Lincoln Park show we went to? Luke took the frame from me, smirking. Yeah, that's us at the Hollywood Bowl. God, two thousand fucking two. We were adorable. I retrieved my bra and snapped it into place. All the guys at school were so jealous of you and Tommy. Luke replaced the photo on his shelf. Dude, it was a big thing. It was the first time any of us saw Asians on stage without a fucking cello. You wouldn't get it. I don't get it? I shook my head. We grew up in a Chinese enclave. If anyone was the butt of casual racism, it was me. Did I tell you about the time Brian Yu kept on insisting Cuba was a city in Spain? I had to show him a friggin' map just to shut him up. Brian Yu was a moron. Mrs. Wolb asked what my family did for Cinco de Mayo. Um, same thing you do because it's a Mexican holiday and we're not Mexican. Okay, you have a point. Luke reached for me and wrapped a hand around my neck, nibbled at my ear, fiddled with the clasp of my bra. So, it's a no on round two? My mind was miles away, crouching on a wooden bench at the Hollywood Bowl in 2002. Thousands of teenagers shoved together like packing peanuts and amidst all the stray elbows and screams in my ears and asses in my face clinging to Luke, his skinny arm around my shoulders, my hands in the pockets of his sweatshirt. Micah hadn't been there. Micah wasn't allowed to go. My bra snapped open and I let it slide down my shoulders. I pivoted, turning away from blurry 12-year-old spiky-haired Luke to face his handsome adult incarnation. Then his mouth was pressed against my mouth and memories blurred to bliss. This time she found me in my backyard, as it used to be. Lush wild grass, jasmine hedges in all their glory. Instead of rotten vegetable waste, I smelled their delicious vanilla sweet flowers. We were playing on the swings, arching higher and higher, cool breeze against my cheeks, before dropping towards the earth. Back and forth, back and forth, Matilde's ice-blonde locks and pink dress billowed and fluttered. She was always even with me, always right by my side. "'Are you going to show me where Micah's body is?' I asked her. She smiled. "'Up, down, up, down, side to side. Who would have known? So many places to hide.' Can't make it through the front, so you'll have to climb. Nobody will find what you hid in the slime. Back and forth, back and forth. I liked this dream. Your weapon is powdery, grainy, and white. You'll find it where the dead children cry. She giggled. We swung in silence. Then something in our rhythm changed. 
the jerks downward became uncomfortably choppy, accompanied by the groan of metal on metal. I was starting to feel nauseous. I tried to slow myself, but found that in my subconscious, gravity didn't work. Matilde, I said finally, why can't you just tell me where Micah is? Another violent jerk. A sad, almost pitying frown settled on Matilde's face. You already know. There was a mighty creak, then a snap. Then I was falling. Down. Down. The next thing I registered was the gray tiles of my bathroom floor, then the comforting plastic of the toilet seat as I retched, on my knees, expelling slimy globs of french fries and diet coke. June 10th, 2017. The knocking started after my third round of regurgitation when I was half convinced my stomach was empty and shuffling unsteadily to what I prayed was undisturbed unconsciousness. I'd spent the previous evening in a numb, listless fog, buoyed by good sex and the lingering effects of Luke's palliative presence. But hours later, the crushing headache was back with a vengeance. It felt like my brain was too big for my skull. My face and hair were damp with sweat. I must have been scratching as I slept. My nails were bloody and there were shallow cuts up my thighs. Bang! 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 I could swear in the early morning light I saw the door shake. I felt the sudden urge to scream at the monster to demand it stop exacerbating the pressure in my head. I no longer feared it. I was convinced the thing couldn't dislodge the dowel across the line of chocolate milk. But I was done with the shock value. B-movie stunts. As though the cryptic poems weren't enough. The poem. What was the poem? I grabbed my journal and a pen, went to the kitchen, and put on a pot of coffee. Maybe the caffeine would shrink my brain down to normal size. I still heard the knocks down the hall. I really hoped Micah wouldn't start screaming. Pen in hand, I transcribed Matilde's poem word for word. I read it out loud, divided it into stanzas, mouthed each syllable, exercised my non-existent cryptography skills, and tried to find meaning in individual letters. Up, down, up, down, side to side. I skipped that one. Who would have known so many places to hide? Somewhere I'd played hide-and-seek? The forest? Where my last game had been against a pride of faceless antwalkers? My stomach did a flip. Can't make it through the front, so you'll have to climb. Nobody will find what you hid in the slime. Huh? I abandoned my amateur code-breaking. I really doubted there was a more secret message hidden in the already unreadable lines. Apparently I needed something powdery, grainy, and white, and I was supposed to be looking for it where the dead children cry? A hospital? A morgue? A graveyard? We didn't even have a graveyard in town, and what there was powdery, grainy, and white? Powdered sugar? Cocaine? I dug through my journal. Eleven-year-old me was no help in solving the riddle, and neither was my inability to focus. My thoughts fluttered to swing sets and blue-black heads with no faces and Luke's sinewy body rocking against mine. And then I'd realize I'd read the same sentence three times. What are you staring at? Alicia jolted me from my half-waking state. She was still in sweats and a tank top, pouring herself a cup of coffee. She sat across from me and looked, suspiciously, at the journal. I pulled it away. Nothing! The last thing I needed was Alicia asking questions. She leaned back, somewhat offended. Fine. Something bothered me about the way she eyed me. I remembered our unsatisfying conversation the day before. Hey, Leash, I said. The day Micah disappeared, why didn't you go to the park with us? Her eyes narrowed. She batted at a loose strand of hair. Stop doing that hair twisty thing, I demanded. It's your fucking totem. When you do it, you're lying. I know it. Fucking opposing counsel is going to know it. Get that shit under control. She stood up abruptly. She dropped the tuft of hair. Ansley, she started cautiously. 
Why do you keep asking me about that day? Because I'm fucking sick of everybody messing with me! I screamed. It was true. Until that moment, I hadn't fully mentalized just how frustrated I was. If it wasn't my sister during my waking hours, it was Matilda in my dreams. No one could give me a straight answer. Alicia took a step back. I'm sure she noted my glistening forehead, my bagged eyelids, the twitch that my hands and nose had adopted, the unfocused dart of my eyes. Anne's, you're not taking your meds. I grabbed my journal, turned my back on her, and locked myself in my room. The knocking had thankfully stopped. The coffee dulled the pressure in my head but amplified my shaking hands. I dressed and brushed my hair. I'd wanted a shower but didn't feel like waiting out running blood. I knew I needed to go back to my sister, play nice, convince her I was nice and sane and not a danger to myself or others, and that she didn't need to call the cops. But first, I needed to flush two more pills. The Starbucks, with its vanilla and cream smell and mumbling, bumbling horde of professionals, was a more welcome reprieve than I'd anticipated. Either the processed sugar or the ice in my java chip frappuccino was working wonders on my throbbing head. I'd apologized to Alicia. I hadn't slept well, I said. I'd made an appointment with the local psychiatrist my Florida doctor had recommended. She nodded, made me promise to stay home and sleep, and left for the library. I guess I'm a better liar than she is. Maybe I should go to law school. When the throng of business casual zombies cleared, I saw a familiar face behind the counter. I hadn't immediately recognized him with his blonde locks covered by a cap. Travis? You work here? He grinned at me. Ansley! Shit, I was going to call you. So this is the day job. Ghost hunting doesn't pay the bills? My sizzle reel's on YouTube, he said. Any day now, you'll see me on sci-fi. His eyes widened. By the way, I wanted to tell you I found some drawings in our attic. I'm pretty sure they were done by that girl you were talking about, Matilde. Did you find anything white and grainy up there by any chance? The words sounded ridiculous as I said them. Travis frowned. What? Never mind. Speaking of Matilde, I actually wanted to ask you something. He looked at me suspiciously. The other night, were you pushing the planchard? My stomach dropped. The nausea of the morning made its second appearance. No, I said. Why would you ask that? He grabbed my hand and led me to a table, sat across from me, and leaned in conspiratorially. I tried again, he said. I tried to contact her three more times with my Ouija board. I did exactly the same thing we did together. Same candles, same incense, even the same time of day. Nothing. The planchard didn't even shake. So I tried scrying. And then I had Warren hypnotize me. I snorted. Your boyfriend is a hypnotist? Amateur. The point is, I got nothing. And the only variable is you. He gave me the same look Alicia had an hour before. The look Luke had given me countless times. Travis, the guy touting the legitimacy of hypnotism and scrying. The single person in my orbit who'd never once implied I was crazy. For the love of Christ, man! I laughed, suddenly taken by the ridiculousness. We both felt the same thing that night. It moved like a fucking hamster. He sighed, nodded. You're right. Something weird happened that night, and you were as freaked out as I was. He giggled. When my show gets picked up, maybe you and the ghost of Matilde can be my first episode. I smiled. I'll make an appearance. Or you can go back to the haunted video store. You know, where your friend heard the little murdered boys crying. Maybe the sci-fi geeks will buy your stupid story. It took me a good five seconds to process what I'd just said. It's so lame you can't go with us. 
Micah and I sat on my back porch soaking up the last of the late afternoon weekend sun. Tommy was at basketball practice and Luke's math field day team met on Saturdays, so it was just the two of us. Yeah, it sucks. Micah chirped. His voice was still the voice of a little boy. They don't even curse or talk bad about women, I continued ranting. It's not like we're going to a corn concert. My mom's scared there's going to be people doing pot and I'll get an asthma attack, he said. How did your parents even let you go? My mom called Tommy's mom, I explained. Since you're not going, Tommy's cousin has an extra ticket and she said I could give it to Alicia. My mom said that if Alicia went, I could go too. Oh. We sat in silence, watching shadows elongate under the swing set. Micah, normally a chattering wind-up toy, had been uncharacteristically reticent and morose all afternoon, prone to fits of angst-ridden staring. If Tommy and Luke had been around, their banter would pad the silence. But alone at dusk on a Saturday, Micah's personality shift was impossible to ignore. "'Dude, what's your deal lately?' I asked finally. Micah looked up at me, thick, curly bangs falling over his brown eyes. "'You're moving.' he said, almost in a whisper. Yeah. My family's pending cross-country relocation had hung in the air like the persistent hum of a faraway lawnmower since the previous summer. It was anything but a secret to my three best friends, but it seemed a distant consideration. With schoolwork, video games, and our plots to defeat the demon serving as more present concerns, the march of time towards our planned June departure had been easy to ignore. But Micah saw the boxes on my bedroom floor. My mom was in the process of cleaning out the closet once stuffed to the gills with old clothes, kid toys, and assorted flotsam and jetsam that didn't fit anywhere else. If the reality of the situation hadn't sunk in before, it did that Saturday afternoon. You'll still have Tommy and Luke, I said comfortingly. I guess, Micah frowned. Luke's going to be in eighth grade. He won't want to play with me anymore. Micah's lip quivered. I had a sudden impulse to reach out for him, to take him in my arms and cuddle him like a stuffed bear. Then I thought of something better. We need to kill the demon before I move. The next hour passed in a sustained burst of energy. We rolled silver polymer clay into snake-like dowels, pinched the ends, and mounted the resulting pikes on golden hilts decorated with the remaining colors. Mine a green and black rabbit, Micah's a bright red scorpion. As my mom, eager for a break from sorting sawdust-coated baby clothes into keep-and-donate piles, baked our creations in the oven. Micah and I hooked the Ethernet cable to my family's boxy PC. "'It's a full moon tonight!' I exclaimed. Outside, against the settling dusk, we excitedly gathered creamy white jasmine while babbling snippets of strategy. "'You and me will battle the ant walkers with our swords,' I mused. "'So long as we're touching indestructible magic foam, they can't suck out our souls. "'Then Tommy can climb into the trees and look for the fuzzy lime bushes.' "'They can't pass the fuzzy lime bushes,' Micah reiterated. "'And when we're fighting them off, Luke goes with a flashlight and scare away the droxies. "'And Tommy can have the starshine juice, just in case we don't kill the great bagworm.' After the jasmine, we gathered avocados fallen from a neighbor's tree and rotting in the dirt, then ivy leaves, then elderberries. On the porch, we mixed our bounty with salt, Capri Sun, Gogurt, Sunny Delight, and Alicia's cool blue Gatorade, alchemy transforming raw ingredients into invisibility serum, ice liquid, which would freeze the demon's fire breath on contact, marigold pea, to throw off the droxies who were attracted to the smell of urine, elixir of healing, and diarrhea guacamole to be smeared in the demon's eyes. Then, still warm swords in hand, we chanted to the full moon, towards the glowing orange eyes we couldn't see, but we felt in our bones, to counter the call of the demon, a deep, guttural growl we knew we heard rippling through the still night air. 
That night I was a warrior, a hero, a being capable of staring down otherworldly monsters and walking away victorious. I definitely didn't walk away from that Starbucks feeling like a warrior. I felt overwhelmed and a little sick. As soon as I got home, I pulled out my journal and looked over Mathilde's rhyme again. Now that I had one piece of the puzzle, the others readily tumbled together. Up, down, up, down, side to side. Like a joystick. Like the arcade games Kevin Gideon kept at Atomic Video. Who would have known so many places to hide? The crawl space, where he'd hidden Micah's sweater and inhaler. You'll find it where the dead children cry. Mathilde was sending me to the abandoned, under-construction storefront that had once been Atomic Videos to look for something powdery, grainy, and white. I spent the rest of the day scheming and discarding strategy after strategy to complete phase two of Mathilde's rat maze. Sneaking into my own shed was one thing, breaking and entering in the grown-up world, contending with the possibility of witnesses and the probability of a security system called for a significant leveling up. In the end, I came back to the only criminal trick I had in my arsenal, jimmy the lock with a bobby pin and pray there wasn't an alarm. I binge-watched animated movies on my laptop for a while, family crap with lots of talking animals in primary colors, until the bright spots dancing in the corner of my vision became too distracting. Then I went to the mall. It wasn't crowded, but the shadow people kept on peeking out from behind the small pods of browsing retirees and women with strollers. I was itchy. Itchy all over. Then I found a big black dog with floppy ears and no tail under the clothes racks at J.C. Penney. I tried to grab the dog, but it ran into the shoe section. I looked under the chairs and display tables for a few minutes, then flagged down a sales girl. She looked at me like I was on drugs, so I deduced that there had never been a dog, and that coming to the mall was a bad idea. By 11.30 at night, my mind was slightly calmer. Alicia had gone to bed. I considered taking the shovel for a good ten minutes before concluding that would be idiotic. I thought about taking a knife for another quarter hour. I decided it wasn't a completely stupid idea, but in the rather likely case I was caught, I didn't want to be caught with a weapon. In the end, my entire toolkit fit in my pocket, a few bobby pins and my cell phone. I slipped out, shut the front door quietly, and drove. In classic suburban style, every business in town was closed for the night. As I pulled into the shopping center, I noted with some relief that even the McDonald's had shut its drive through That was the only one I'd worried about and I doubted anyone would be taking a midnight stroll through an empty parking lot. Then I remembered that some jobs require hanging around empty parking lots at midnight. A boxy ambulance stalled right in front of the storefront I'd planned on breaking into. Fuck. I pulled into the nearest parking spot and turned off my car, praying they hadn't seen me. Maybe I was overreacting, I thought. They were EMTs from the local BLS outfit, not firefighters and definitely not cops. Still, though, they couldn't ignore a shaky white chick prowling around a strip mall, and they wouldn't hesitate to call the proper authorities if they caught said shaky white chick jacking a lock with a bobby pin. Why did they have to be parked directly across from formerly Atomic Videos? I leaned back in the driver's seat. My second weapon would just have to wait a day. There was a tap at the passenger side window. Mathilde was standing outside. I blinked. I pinched myself. I breathed in deeply and didn't smell Colonel Lewis's compost heap. When I looked back, Mathilde was no longer at my window. More confused than frightened, I climbed out of my car and saw her standing a short distance away, leaning against the wall of Ralph's. With one dainty finger, she beckoned to me. I went to her. She ran off along the far side of Ralph's. I followed her fleeing form, her ice-blonde hair catching the waxing moonlight like flax. I followed her around the supermarket, 
past the loading dock and the row of blue dumpsters, behind the strip mall to the back lot, a narrow, dead-ended alley with a single row of parking spaces, squished between the black stucco of the structure and a high brick wall. Only employees ever parked back there, and few of them. Like deja vu, I knew where I was going. I recognized the little blue door that was the employee entrance to Atomic Videos, but Mathilde ran past it, ran as far as the dead end, a lower, perpendicular cinder block wall. There was an office complex on the other side. I noticed another trash dumpster there, a smaller one, one that would need to be rolled to the other side of Ralph's on trash day because there was no way a garbage truck would fit in the alley. Mathilde climbed on top of it. From the dumpster lid, she hopped onto the cinder block wall. She looked back at me, porcelain smile angelic. Then she jumped. I ran after her, breathing through my mouth, I mounted the dumpster and peered over the wall. Unsurprisingly, Mathilde was gone. I was on my own. Surprisingly, though, the rush of deja vu came again. I knew what I was doing. There was a narrow valley between the side of the strip mall and the wall. I balanced atop the cinder blocks and took small, cautious steps towards a little ladder mounted on the outer side of the complex. I clambered up the ladder. I was on the roof. Can't make it through the front, so you'll have to climb. Staying low, I scurried along the roof until I came to a handle. I pulled the handle. A trap door opened. I'll spare you the details of my ratchet lined shimmy through the horizontal air vent. I will say that I considered shimmying backwards, climbing down the ladder, hopping off the dumpster, driving home, and watching friends until the sun came up at least five times. And it really wasn't a long crawl. I was terrified of running into a lost creature of the creeping variety, and hosted horrific visions of the trapdoor slamming shut and locking behind me and my starved, liquefying corpse being found by some unfortunate construction worker when I started to smell. It was dark. The light from the open trapdoor did little to cut through the metal tunnel. Then something quivered under the weight of my palm. I dislodged a loose ceiling tile. I lowered myself to the surface below me, luckily a carpenter's table rather than the floor. I was in a small, unassuming, undecorated room. It had once been the adults-only section of Atomic Video. Then I had a nauseating thought. Micah's red sweater and prescription inhaler were found stuffed in a crawl space behind a dislodged ceiling tile. This was the crawl space. Mathilde had led me to a crime scene, the place where the pivotal piece of evidence in my best friend's kidnapping investigation had been hidden. I climbed off the table. I wandered into the main area of the store. The paneling on the walls had been pulled away and the floor was bare plaster. Was I about to stumble upon Micah's decomposed remains? My blood pressure rose, then logic kicked in. The storefront had been remodeled numerous times since Micah's disappearance, after the police had been over every inch of it. If Kevin Gideon had found a place within Atomic Videos to hide the violated body of my best friend, it would have been found a long time ago. The store was your typical cluttered construction site, work tables set up and littered with abandoned tools, dislodged insulation, half-finished water bottles, unopened packs of tiles piled in a corner, torn-out wood paneling strewn across the floor. My second weapon was easy enough to find. There were three bags of powdered concrete tossed against an eviscerated wall. One was open. I stuffed handfuls in my jacket pockets, leaving me covered in flowery dust. This had to be it. I could see nothing else powdery, grainy, and white. I had no idea what use powdered concrete could possibly be against the orange-eyed tree monster Mathilde was apparently prepping me to fight. Actually, I had no idea what purpose this semi-legal scavenger hunt served at all. Mathilde could have just sent me to a Home Depot. As I puzzled over my ghostly companion's intentions, I heard something. Something that sounded a lot like a large form sliding through the air vent. 
Heart pounding, I ran back to the back room. Then my body numbed. Someone, something, hung like a demented slug halfway out the hole in the ceiling. Blue and gray mottled fingers attached to rotting arms. Moldy skin hung off ragged grayish bones. Torn blue shirt, drenched in blood, stuck to a wrinkled gray torso. Dripping maggots from a fermenting hole, exposing cracked ribs. Face, what had once been a face, mottled blue. Lips eaten away, swollen black tongue lolling from a decomposing, exposed jaw. Stringy dark hair coated with congealed blood. Right above its cauliflower-nibbled right ear was a violent crack, leaking gray liquid mixed with blood. Its yellow bloodshot eyes were alive. Those eyes. I still see them when I close mine, and I know I always will. In the moment, though, what horrified me the most was that the person, the thing, the decomposing zombie that had followed me to an abandoned construction site at midnight, was someone I once knew. Kevin Gideon. As I stood frozen in horror, Kevin, the Kevin thing, dropped like a persistent cockroach onto the same carpenter's table as I had, catching itself with its hands. The force of the landing, with a sickening crunch, forced its ulnas through its ragged skin. A smell like rotting meat assaulted me. Zombie Kevin kept moving. Like a smashed insect, he dragged himself across the table with his mottled, rotting hands. His legs, wrapped in jeans stained with a dark substance, didn't appear to work, and hung uselessly behind him. His yellow, maniacal eyes fixated on me. When he made the drop from the table to the floor, I ran. I ran like a horror movie vixen, stumbling over discarded paneling to the front door. The locked front door. The lock I couldn't find. I looked behind me and back into zombie Kevin's eyes. He was making progress across the wooden planks. Overtaken by hysteria, the stink of zombie Kevin's putrefying body unbearable, I screamed. Screamed again and again, rattled the door, kicked, screamed for somebody, anybody, to let me out. Something grabbed my ankle. I whirled, stumbled, fell, and landed on my ass. I was eye to eye with the thing, his hand icy and moist, wrapped around my bare flesh. He opened his mouth. Maggots dripped onto my shoes. Through the massive hole in his skull, I could see insects feeding on his rotten brain. I pulled back my free leg, aimed my foot at the ruined mouth. With a snap, I connected. I felt pressure, sickening moisture, and then the head was skittering across the exposed concrete floor. The grip on my ankle abated. The body collapsed. Bugs, ants, worms, beetles, crawled out from the gray-green fleshy nub the head had once been attached to. I leaned back on my hands, away from the deluge of insects. My fingers brushed something, a latch at the bottom of the door. I turned it. In one movement, I pulled myself to my feet with the handle and pushed. I half-stepped, half-fell into the night air, slamming the door behind me. A minute of frantic hyperventilating later, I remembered the brick-shaped ambulance that forced me to seek out the back entrance in the first place. It was no longer there. Besides my car, the parking lot was empty. It was possible they'd been sent out on a call, but I had a sneaking suspicion there was never really an ambulance at all. Just like there was never... I pulled the door open. I surveyed the disorderly construction site and found no maggots or crawling bugs, no leaking, decapitated body, no decomposing head. Just a dream. Just a dream. Then it came, echoing across the empty parking lot over the dark rooftops. A groan. A roar. A ground-shaking howl like a freight train. The call, ageless and endless, forever malevolently furious, of a monster awakened. June 11th, 2017. 
I awoke at 10 to sunlight streaming through my blinds. My head wasn't throbbing, my brain wasn't swollen, my hands weren't shaking, and I wasn't drenched in sweat. For a moment, I was relieved. The physical portion of withdrawal seemed to be over. Then I kicked my legs over the side of my bed and pain shot from my left foot to my thigh. I poked at my ankle. It was red and tender, and there were five purple bruises wrapped like the fingers of a skeletal hand. As I sat on the toilet, waiting for the blood running from the tap to dissipate and leave clean water in its place, I massaged my ankle and went over again and again what I'd done the night before. I'd seen the decomposing, reanimated corpse of Kevin Gideon. He'd grabbed me. The bruises I could blame on my subconscious, mind over matter, stigmata, and whatnot. But why, if Mathilde's ultimate goal was to lead me to Micah's body, I couldn't see the point of luring me to the place his body was, quite obviously not. To be accosted by the B-movie version of the guy everybody's shaky evidence aside currently assumed killed Micah? Shaky evidence was the point. I forgot about my shower, returned to my room, changed, and googled Kevin Gideon. I did it with a fresh set of eyes and a new theory. The cops initially went apeshit over the pictures of swimwear-clad little girls found in Kevin's AOL inbox, but later it was revealed the pictures had been sent by a cousin. She intended to buy little Tiffany Gideon a bathing suit for her birthday and wanted Kevin's opinion on which one Tiffany would like. A few local mothers were quoted as complaining that he'd inappropriately picked up or put his arms around their sons, but no one had seemed particularly bothered by it until after Micah's disappearance. And when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. For all intents and purposes, the evidence amassed wasn't even shaky. It was non-existent. They didn't have a squirt of fresh semen or a drop of blood. They'd searched every inch of Kevin's apartment, his car, atomic video, and all they'd come up with was Micah's favorite red hoodie and inhaler, shoved in the same air vent crawl space I'd shimmied across the night before. It was suspicious. It was, at least in the court of public opinion, damning. If something horrible hadn't happened to Michael Wall while he was under Kevin Gideon's supervision, why would Kevin have hidden the jacket and inhaler? Guilty people hide things. So why did they find the hoodie and the inhaler but not Micah? The working theory made no sense. If Kevin Gideon had, in the time between Micah's murder and the issuance of the search warrant, managed to hide his body so effectively that 15 years later not so much as a hair had been found, why shove them in the archetypical primetime cop drama hiding spot when apparently he was the premier body disposal expert in the county? He could have burned the hoodie. He could have chucked both the hoodie and the inhaler out the window along the 210. Fuck that. He, he could have tossed it all in the dumpster. The dumpster I'd used as a stepladder the night before. What kind of murderer leaves damning evidence hidden in a crawlspace above a dislodgeable ceiling tile? The kind of murderer who wants to make somebody else look guilty. I also found a Pasadena Star News article detailing Kevin Gideon's death. Suspected child murderer killed in parking lot brawl. An unknown man had accosted Kevin as he walked to his white Civic, two Slurpees in hand. Kevin told him to fuck off. The man fucked off and came back with a Louisville slugger. The 7-Eleven staff called 911. By the time the paramedics arrived, Kevin was seizing on the asphalt in a pool of blood and spilled sugar water, both legs broken, a gaping hole in his skull. Nine-year-old Tiffany Gideon had been found sprawled across Kevin's chest, begging her daddy to wake up. The mysterious assailant fled. They never caught him. I doubt they made much effort. The picture that accompanied the story showed little Tiffany halfway through an anguished howl restrained by a female police officer, her face bearing uncanny similarity to the rotting, worm-eaten face I'd stared into the night before, was swollen and streaked with tears, 
her light-colored tunic dark with her father's blood. I'd known Tiffany. She was two years younger than me and went to a different school, but, like me, spent many afternoons in her father's shop. I'd see her, quiet and demure, sitting cross-legged in a corner behind the register, working through math problems. We played Pac-Man together, talked about Britney Spears and the Babysitter's Club. I knew why Mathilde sent me to that empty storefront, why I'd seen the ambulance prompting my MacGyver entrance. I doubted I even needed the powdered concrete, now leaking from my jacket all over the carpet. No. I needed the demonstration. She was trying to show me just how easy it would have been for somebody to creep along the crawl space as I had and leave Micah's red hoodie there for the police to find. Someone, or something. The Droxies are servants of the demon. They do his bidding. They like small, enclosed spaces. My phone rang. It was Travis's number. Ansley! I thought you were coming over last night. Fuck. I had been. Distracted by the task of breaking and entering, I'd completely forgotten my morning discussion with Travis. The pictures. Mathilde's pictures. God, I'm, I'm sorry, man. Um, I said to him. I'll come over in five minutes. I'm walking into Starbucks right now, he said. I've got the pictures in my car, though, if you want to come and grab them from me. Bang! 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 The closet monster was awake. I'm on until eight. Travis continued. I decided I could do with a coffee. I rushed into Tommy's room, a pit of dread burning in my stomach. I felt my blood pounding my wrists and my ears were ringing. I can't go to the concert! Micah, explaining our plan to circumvent the Ant Walkers to Tommy and Luke, stopped talking. All three boys stared at me, panting in the hallway. Nokia flip phone in my hand, eyes watering. I can't go to the concert, I repeated. Lexi Chambers just called me. She asked if she could come over and use our computer to type her life science report. Tommy raised his eyebrows. And? And I'm in her life science class, I practically yelled. And the report's due this Friday. I thought it wasn't due till next week. It was Tuesday. The concert was on Thursday. My parents wouldn't allow me to go. My grades had slipped that semester. I'd gone from mostly A's to failing math tests and forgetting homework. I couldn't pay attention. I struggled to concentrate in class. That blows, Tommy admitted. Yeah, Micah added, though I noticed his lips curl into an involuntary smile. Luke's eyes widened. Is this the report you guys have to do about animals? I nodded. I don't even have a rough draft. Who's your teacher? Luke asked. Miss Lewis. I could all but see the wheels turning behind his eyes, his brilliant mind picking up pieces and constructing something new and beautiful. So why did you have these in your car anyways? Travis and I sat at one of the little metal tables outside Starbucks. He sucked down a cigarette. I dug through the fairly substantial pile of Matilde Kapersky's drawings he'd found in his attic. I took them to a friend of mine in Silver Lake, he said shyly. She's a psychic. Yeah, how'd that go? Picture of Matilde's mother talking on the phone and painting her nails. Picture of two boys in the old school playground kicking a soccer ball. Picture of Mr. Lawson, Matilde's neighbor to the right, sitting on his porch and drinking out of a flask. She wasn't getting much, Travis said, but she claimed she felt weird looking at them. Voyeuristic. Matilde's mom in a ratty bathrobe shaving her legs on the toilet. Andy sitting on the couch in his boxers eating a bowl of cereal. Travis's psychic friend was right. I felt like I was seeing something I wasn't supposed to see. It's weird they left these, I said. Travis shrugged. 
We found a bunch of their old crap. Car seats, books, all that jazz. My parents never really took inventory. The pictures were all stuffed in a box of old records. Girls playing jump rope, one boy tripping another on the field, Andy lighting up something in their backyard, me in my front yard playing with a boy in overalls who I guessed was Tommy, my dad pulling tools out of the back of his truck. What you guys doing? The voice wasn't Travis's. I looked up to see Luke, coffee in hand. I pulled the pictures towards me. Hey, Luke, trying to solve a mystery, Travis said innocently. Ansley's being haunted by the ghost of Mathilde, the little girl who lived across the street. I opened my mouth to tell him to shut up a minute too late. Luke rolled his eyes. Seriously, Ansley? Thanks, bro, I said to Travis. Travis looked at his phone. I gotta go back to work. Call me later? He stabbed out his cigarette and all but fled behind the bar, leaving me awkwardly clutching Mathilde's drawings as Luke took his seat, nearly shaking with swallowed laughter. So Mathilde is a ghost now. I rolled my eyes. It's just a joke. Travis found some of her old artwork. Luke dramatically smacked his forehead. You told Travis about a little ghost girl who draws pictures? We will never hear the end of it. I giggled. Then the image of Kevin Gideon's rotting corpse hanging from the dislodged ceiling tile again flashed through my mind. Hey, I said cautiously. I had one more question about Micah. Luke shrugged nonchalantly. Okay. How sure were they about Kevin Gideon? Like, did they ever look at any other suspects? He snorted. <laughs> no, there were no other suspects. Ansley, do we have to talk about that bastard? I forced a smile. We don't. It's just... I feel like I'm caught in a riptide, and every time I stick my head up to breathe, I get pulled right back under. I can't even remember the day Micah disappeared. That's because there's nothing to remember, Luke insisted. It wasn't a special day. We played in your backyard. We went to the park. We all went home. End of story. Alicia said we played in Colonel Lewis's yard. You know, my neighbor... She said we knocked down a pile of bricks. Sounds about right. Luke clenched his eyes shut and then opened them. Come on, Ansley. I'm off today. Let's do something fun. He grinned at me. I knew exactly what sort of fun he wanted to have, and I would have gone for it, simply sitting across from Luke, knowing his mischievous little boy's smile was for me all but assuaged the recurring mental image of hundreds of gargoyle-faced droxies crowding that air vent, dragging Micah's red hoodie behind them. But just then, a breeze blew by, dislodging some of the drawings from my lap. Clutching the remainder in one hand, I chased the fleeing three to the parking lot, where they'd caught against the curb. I snatched them up and reshuffled the pile. A bomb went off in my head. I squatted impotently on the asphalt, staring at the picture on top as an icy numbness overtook my limbs. Ants, you okay? Luke's shadow fell over me. I pressed the drawings to my chest and stumbled to my feet. My expression must have been batshit crazy because Luke took a step back. I I've got to go, I heard myself say. Luke's smile melted. He peered into my eyes with a clinical coldness, then glanced at my hands. You're not taking your meds. I turned away from him, stepped towards my car. Then I felt his powerful grip on my wrist, forcing me back around to face him. His gray eyes were steely, sterile. Ansley, you're fucking paranoid. This is what you were like when we were kids. I pulled away from him. Without looking back, I ran, threw myself in my car, and turned the key in the ignition. 
I found Micah sitting on the far side of Tommy's yard, hiding behind an old barbecue pit they never used. His eyes were red and streaked with tears. Micah, please, I started. You're copying! That's bad! Luke's idea had been simple. Miss Lewis was a new teacher, and his own fifth-grade teacher, Mrs. Fong, retired the year before. He'd been assigned a similar life science report two years earlier, one he'd written about animals that used echolocation, and one he'd saved on a floppy disk. I'd read it over, change some wording, and turn it in as my own work. I could go to the concert. No one would know. I crouched beside Micah. It's just this once, I promise. Micah, please don't tell on us. You only want to be with Luke. No, I said emphatically. I played with you on Saturday. Because Luke was doing something. Please, Micah, I begged. You can't tell. You'll get us both in trouble. Do you like Luke? That wasn't the question I'd been expecting out of him, and I found I couldn't respond, because I had developed a crush on Luke, and I did want to be alone with him. No, I lied. I just really want to go to the concert. Micah sniffled, and I thought he believed me because he nodded. I should have made him promise. On Friday, I walked into class, tired, hoarse from screaming, wrapped snugly in the memories of Luke's arms around me, and turned in my plagiarized report. By two that afternoon, Micah told. I admitted to it, said it was all my idea, begged the principal not to get Luke in trouble, but he called the middle school principal anyways, and we were both suspended. Later, as I sat chastised on a bench by the playground, waiting for my mother to finish her conversation with Miss Lewis and drive me home, I saw Micah. The bell rang, and his class filed to the pickup line. He noticed me. He walked towards me, lip trembling, eyes wide and pleading. Ansley. I wanted to scream. I wanted to kick, punch, bite, call him every bad name I knew, but I didn't. I consolidated my anger, rolled it into two glowing orange balls, positioned the smoldering orbs behind my corneas. When I did speak, it was barely above a whisper. I hate you. Those were the last words Micah ever heard me say. Alicia lay on her bed, listening to music. I shoved a picture in front of her face. She looked at it, then looked at me quizzically. Read the date, I said to her. What are you... It's Mathilde's. Read the date. She took the drawing from me. It showed a boy and a girl wrapped in each other's arms, kissing on the floral print couch Mr. and Mrs. Kapersky kept in their living room. The boy sported blonde emo boy curls. The girl's long brown waves extended down her back, nearly reaching her pleated miniskirt. The pleated miniskirt I'd seen Alicia slip into before every high school party. It's the day Micah disappeared, I shouted at her. The day you were supposedly watching us. You snuck out to see your boyfriend. Her eyes bulged. She stared, twirling a strand of hair in her fingers until she finally managed words. Maybe, maybe the date's wrong. Fuck, Alicia. I seethed. Did that chick ever miss a detail? Alicia stopped messing with her hair. She sighed. She rolled into a sitting position and took on a submissive posture, defeated. You had a cell phone, she said with forced calm. You and Tommy were in fifth and sixth grade, not kindergarten. I told you to call me if you needed anything, and you practically pushed me out the door. Well, you should have said no, I snapped. I was the kid. I mean, what if instead of Alistair Park we'd gone to Atomic Videos? We could have been murdered. And you think I don't think about that every day? Alicia was yelling now, her voice cracked. It didn't seem like it was a big deal. Then Mrs. Wall called and said Micah hadn't come home, and I... I didn't want to freak out Mom and Dad, so I lied. And you covered for me. 
Alicia blinked back tears. Her obvious remorse iced my burning fury, and for the first time I wondered why I was so obsessed with the day Micah disappeared. Whatever monster had lurked in the shadows, I couldn't have saved him. I was being paranoid. Luke was right, I murmured. Alicia's eyes narrowed. Luke Anderson? I hadn't realized I'd spoke aloud. Um, yeah, I've been hanging out with him. My sister scowled. Remorse exchanged for something resembling disgust. I never liked that kid. What? Luke Anderson, Alicia repeated. There was something wrong with that boy, something mental. He's the one who said he saw some, some monster. One of you guys' ridiculous creations eat Micah. Then you started having nightmares. Bang! 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 The monster was at it again. Alicia didn't hear anything. Anthony, help me! Save me! Micah's voice, louder than ever, more frantic, more desperate. I know he was upset and all, Alicia was saying, but he made things so much worse by feeding you some bullshit fantasy. Honestly, please come get me, I'm so scared. I left my sister still mumbling things she didn't like about Luke. I went to the kitchen, opened the fridge, pulled out a bottle of Alicia's Gatorade. It wasn't cool blue raspberry, but it would have to do. I wandered into the backyard to the elderberry tree, still alive at the far corner of the backyard. I picked a handful of rotten fruit. Back in my room, the closet door was shaking. Bang! 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 I removed the wooden dowel and slid it open. Like streamers in a can, thick purple tentacles exploded. I closed my eyes as a wave of dust hit me in the face. When I opened them, I was staring into two pitch-black globes, reflecting the afternoon sunlight in a malicious glint. They were stuck on either side of a glob-like, melting purple head, a mound of fatty, drooping flesh pulsating, excreting yellowish pus. The bloated, putty-like tentacles reared like cobras, expanded like balloons, and... Shut the fuck up! I screamed, dousing the disgusting pile with ice liquid. I blinked. My closet was empty, save for the Gatorade and crushed berries dripping down the back wall and pooling on the carpet. I smiled. Luke made me feel calm and safe and warm. But with Micah by my side, I could forge swords and brew potions and lead armies. I crossed my now soundless room, sat on my bed, and found my little brown journal. I flipped past my childish storytelling, past Tommy's colorful illustrations, past Mathilde's rhymes and my attempts at interpreting them. I flipped to the end. I knew what I'd find there. Somehow I knew. The message was scrawled in a child's writing, but not mine the same child's handwriting that decorated the stack of drawings. You're ready to complete the quest. I was ready. The demon kidnapped Micah. Tommy knew it. According to Alicia, Luke knew it too. Tommy couldn't deal with the memories. Luke grew up and stopped believing, which left me. I had to confront the creature myself, complete the childhood quest we'd never finished, and find whatever was left of my best friend. I wasn't psychotic. I alone had uncovered the truth. That's what the ghost of Matilde was trying to tell me. I needed to stop lying to myself, stop taking pills that dulled my intuition, and trust the little girl I'd once been. Trust what that little girl had seen all those years ago. I felt something wet in the pocket of my jeans, crushed jasmine flowers. I remembered the night I'd ventured into the forest when I chased Matilde to the Starshine Gate, the gate at which we'd always meet Micah. Kevin Gideon dropped Micah off in front of a little white house with big windows, across Huntington from the Starshine Gate. There was a row of little white houses with big windows. I'd seen the eyes of the demon glowing in the light of the... 
jasmine flowers picked under the full moon. I stuck the shovel in my backpack. I took a knife from the kitchen. I peered into Alicia's room and saw that she had retreated to the bathroom to shower. The minute I heard water running, I slipped out of the house and drove to the closest liquor store. When I returned, I locked myself in my room with a plastic baggie full of raw ingredients. The sun was setting by the time I'd finished preparing. I threw on my jacket, tossed my backpack over my shoulders, marched like a soldier to the front door, and nearly tripped over my sister. Alicia, sitting on the couch, stood when I approached. I could tell she'd been waiting for me. Ansley, she said firmly, where are you going? I froze. I blinked. Out. I hadn't thought to prepare a disposable lie. Jaw set, Alicia strode to the door, positioning herself between it and me. Who were you yelling at earlier? I fished for an acceptable diversion, then I realized I didn't want to have this conversation. I was sick of having this conversation, of explaining myself, defending my mental state, being told again and again that my own experiences were nothing more than delusion. I'd tried it their way. I'd taken my pills and trusted the grown-ups, and where had that gotten me? Where had reality gotten them? Kevin Gideon was dead, Tommy was dead, and a decade and a half later they still hadn't found Micah's body. No, I wasn't doing it. I stepped to Alicia's left. She blocked me again. With both hands harder than was necessary, harder than I should have, I pushed her. Emitting a small cry, she stumbled and fell to the ground, landing in the pile of yellowing mail she'd pestered me about. Ansley! She yelped, her voice sharp with terror. If you leave, I'm calling the cops. I ignored her. I ran for the door, slammed it behind me, and kept on running. Down the street, across Fifth Avenue, to the gates of Alistair Park, to the gates of the underworld. Then came the cry. The roar like a freight train. The fire emitted from the belly of a beast, ancient and furious. It shook the ground. I smelled sulfur in the air. It knew I was coming. In the low-dusk sunlight, Alistair Park reclaimed its color. The steel slide shimmered. The play structure loomed like the Emerald City in remastered Technicolor. Rich green monkey bars, drawbridge of fire engine red, sky-blue swing swaying in the warm summer breeze. But despite the perfect evening, the playground was empty. The hard foam floor bulged. Something was straining against it, tearing, forcing its way up from the sand buried beneath. I reached into my backpack. Pop! 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 Torn pieces of foam flew into the air as yellow tubes emerged. The bagworms, freed from their manufactured prison, writhed and wiggled like air socks in a hurricane, thick as a fist and solid. They hit the ground like fallen streamers, stretched and shot towards my feet. They were surprisingly fast. I shook my first bottle of starshine juice. As the thick yellow worms came together like slimy spokes on a wheel, I twisted off the lid. My finger covering half of the mouth of the bottle, I sprayed a stream of explosive foam. I thought the worms would retreat. They didn't. As the Diet Coke and Days Old Jasmine settled on their monochrome flesh, it began to melt. There was a sound like bacon frying in a pan, followed by a high-pitched screech from no discernible source, then a gurgling. A smell of molten rubber as their cylindrical bodies softened to putty, then to liquid with the consistency and color of house paint. It flowed onto the concrete. I jumped backwards as it splashed against my shoes with a distasteful warmth. Leaving the liquefying worms behind, I ran for the forest. Under the swing set maybe twenty feet from me, a giant bubble formed. Little fissures broke across the hard foam. With a violent shoop, the great bagworm burst from her subterranean kingdom. I'd imagined her as a longer, thicker yellow tube, the gargantuan version of her subjects, presently reduced to mush. As her majestic head shot into the air, six-foot-long feelers arched predatorily. 
followed by her pulsating body, I realized I'd been horrifically wrong. She was not a worm, but a giant centipede. Her sectioned bulk was bright red, hard with the consistency of plastic. She reared like a mythical snake, her bulbous, fanged head feet above mine, hissed viciously. I had my hand on the cap of my second bottle of starshine juice when she dove. I jumped to the side and landed awkwardly on my right arm. I felt the granular scrape of the material through my jacket and pain shot up from my weak ankle. I snatched up the bottle as it rolled, sat and frantically twisted as the gargantuan anthropoid looped around, straightened and prepared for her next strike. I pulled myself to my feet. I reached into the pocket of my jeans. As the great bagworm reared backwards again, I pulled out the high-caliber artillery. A roll of Mentos. I maneuvered a little white mint out of its wax paper sheath, pulled the cap off the bottle I still held, dropped the mento through the mouth, and aimed the resulting violent fountain at the hard plastic monstrosity in front of me. There was red smoke, a violent stench of burning tires, an ear-splitting screech. As the smoke and carbonation haze lifted and the soda blast weakened to a trickle, I saw the fruits of my attack, black spots on her red exoskeleton, murder in her clustered pupilless eyes. Crap. I just pissed her off. Hissing her war cry, she dove for me again, hundreds of legs flailing. I dodged her exposed fangs, felt itchy cilia brush against my cheek. As I regained my footing, I remembered something Micah had said to me once. She's got a really hard exoskeleton like a lobster or rhinoceros beetle. Did you know that rhinoceros beetles can carry like 800 times their weight? I ran. Ran to the left, towards the basketball court and the softball diamond. The air displaced by the great bagworm's cyclopean body set the swings jerking violently. The metallic caterwauling shook my memory, brought to the forefront Micah's childlike voice. We can't just, like, squirt her with starshine juice. I think I should find out where her exoskeleton is weak. I stopped running. I dislodged my backpack, reached in, wrapped my hand around my knife and my final bottle of starshine juice. She was behind me. I felt hot breath, the pressure of hundreds of legs vibrating against the ground. I didn't look back. I twisted the cap off the bottle. I poured the now warm soda onto the blade of the knife. I turned. Her bulging, many-eyed head was ten feet from me. Teeth bared. Orange mouth wide open, revealing a cavernous, ribbed throat. Muscles contracting in expectation. Two feet. One foot. I lunged. Hot, rotten beef breath. Putrid moisture against my cheeks, boiling saliva on my hand, stinging, burning. Then the great bagworm threw herself backwards. She screeched like a banshee, shaking her great head, thrashing about, trying to dislodge my knife from the roof of her mouth. The burned rubber reek came back with a vengeance. Her howl shot up a decibel, in disharmony with a crackling sound like microwave popcorn. The starshine juice was cooking her from the inside. I was at the tree line before the gaseous explosion and the sticky splat. The forest was dark, darker than it should have been. I could barely make out the outlines of individual oak trees by the light seeping through the thick canopy of leaves. The sounds of the forest were soothing, crickets chirping, small mammals rustling in the trees, the occasional flutter of wings, a dog's staccato bark far away, the crunch of my shoes on the acorn-crusted ground. As I pulled out my iPhone, zipped my backpack, and threw it over my shoulder, I took comfort in the night sounds. I forced myself to only hear the night sounds. I was scared to hear the sounds beneath them. I focused on the blue-green screen of my phone. I made sure the volume was turned all the way up. The forest fell silent. The persistent crickets took a rest. The squirrels stilled. And I heard it then. The murmuring. Low, demure syllables like the babbling of a baby. Meaningless, mindless. Going up and down. 
random, chillingly innocent major flowing into nerve-tingling minor. Something tugged at the hairs on my arms, pulled my jacket tight against my body. The leaves didn't rustle, then a pull. The skin on my arms dimpled. I felt my cheeks sucked outward from my jaw. It was the sensation of running your hand under the tubular extension of a vacuum cleaner. The murmuring crescendoed. The inconsistent notes became disharmonious, hundreds of stanzas breaking apart, coming together, running over each other. I opened the recorder app on my phone. I held it close as the suction became pressure, tearing my legs apart, pulling my hair until it was painful. It was like being caught in a windstorm, except the wind was laser-focused and blowing from all directions. I slid my thumb over my phone. I turned on the flashlight. A blinding white beam lit the trees. I stared into a featureless black oval, oversized tunnel mouth wide open, forming a perfect negative space cone. There were hundreds of them. They surrounded me. They hung from the branches of trees, crouched below bushes, nearly piled on top of each other. All held their mouths open. Hundreds of black tongues vibrating, black slab, feet curled in anticipation, wrinkled flesh vibrating. I pressed down on my phone. Immediately, the murmuring was drowned out by a series of amplified, high-pitched squeaks. Chaos. The antwalkers collapsed to the acorn carpet, pawing at their own heads. They turned in circles like dogs chasing their tails. They jumped at each other, trampled, swiped at the air with their clay-like paws. They rolled on their backs, warped legs kicking grotesquely like flipped beetles. Those in the trees shook the branches. Acorns and dry leaves rained to the ground and settled on their packmates further aggravating the mass panic. I ran. Guided by the beam of light emanating from my phone, I tore into the blue-black mass. I trampled over putty limbs, kicked at fleshy midsections, felt moist black tongues and cold, mushy paws against my legs. In front of me, I noticed a feature of the forest I'd never seen or seen and forgotten. A line of oaks, straight as sentinels, trunks coated in green-yellow moss, the fuzzy lime bushes. Pain gnawed at my twisted ankle, dry cotton caught in my lungs. I ignored it. I dashed between the waiting trees. I stumbled, skid to a stop, leaned over panting, the tittering bat cry I'd downloaded onto my phone ringing in my ears. I pressed another button and silenced it. The antwalkers couldn't follow me here. The crayon-colored moss signaled the end of their territory. They had no eyes, yet the one in the playground, the antwalker that disrupted my date with Luke, had found me. It found me with its tongue, with its incessant murmuring, until the wail of the police siren threw its senses offline. They moved and hunted like blind dolphins and fruit bats. I jammed their echolocation. Now there was true quiet. I heard neither the antwalkers' murmurs nor any auditory remnants of the mass panic I'd fled through. The jangling chorus of crickets had dissipated. If any birds or squirrels dared venture to this part of the forest, they cowered noiselessly in their nests. Even my footsteps were stealthy. The thick carpet of acorns had given way to loose, surprisingly moist earth. My cell phone illuminated a sparse spattering of trees. Older trees with hard, gray bark and angular, naked offshoots. Warped, bulbous knots. White roots jutting out of the dirt. Though these oaks were farther apart than the younger, fertile trees behind me, the beam of my cell phone caught nothing in the spaces between. Just empty blackness. I was in the realm of the demon. I breathed in, sour, acidy-cut grass, sickly sweet rot, decomposing produce, Colonel Lewis's compost heap, with something acrid creeping around the edges, gassy, sulfury. My backpack was lighter now, empty save for the little shovel I'd filched from Droxy's under the stairs of my dad's shed, my weapon. I thought of my knife, 
discarded in the maw of the great bagworm encased in her gelatin remnants splattered across the playground an acre behind me. I shone my beam to and fro. I turned a circle. Though I hadn't gone more than twenty steps, I could no longer see the military line of the fuzzy lime bushes. I was surrounded on all sides by squat, lifeless arbor skeletons and thick, fog-like, endless darkness. Where was Mathilde? For the first time, I longed for a glimpse of her big blue eyes, white blonde locks, perfect pink dress. I adjusted my backpack on my shoulder. She'd led me here for a reason. I had to trust her. I started forward, or perhaps backwards. Inadvertently, I dropped my arm, aiming my glowing phone at the ground. Then I noticed something. In the distance, a sphere of warm, golden light. I turned off the flashlight on my phone. I was right. Some thirty feet in front of me, there was a light. Like a siren, it beckoned me. Swoop! Swoop! Clang! The silence was broken. The sound came from the same direction as the golden glow. I'd come this way before. Tommy and me, wandering through the front gate of the park. Luke wasn't with us. Luke had texted us. He wanted us to meet him at Alistair Park. He wanted to play hide-and-seek. The compost smell stung. It settled around me like a presence. My heart pounded in my chest, blood crackling through me like electricity. I was getting closer. The light was getting brighter. The sound, dragging, cracking, then metallic, was more intense. Tommy and me, wandering around the playground. No Luke. We'd looked in every single one of his favorite hiding places, edging closer and closer to the tree line. Me, terrified of the forest, Tommy urging me on. Luke's messing with us. He's hiding in the forest because he knows you're scared of it. Two thick, skeletal trees, gray bark peeling, gargantuan warts protruding like many eyes, branches curving, meeting in the air, framing an opening between them. Between them, the light. Like a gate or a barrier, pulse racing, mind stone cold, I cross to the other side. Acorns crunching beneath our feet, creatures humming, crickets singing, wind jostling bright green leaves against each other. Together, a scattered symphony, like the murmuring of voices, the line of mossy trees, behind them a sound like metal on earth. Swoop! Swoop! Clang! A form in front of me. A tall man, digging a hole, a mountain of earth piled to his left. I stepped on a leaf, a crunch. The man dropped the shovel and, with a gasp, whirled around. A boy digging. Something, some sort of heap. A pile of clothes, blue and white and red. Luke. I gasped. Luke, my Luke, was digging a hole in front of the tree. The demon's tree. His jaw dropped at the sight of me. Ansley, what the fuck are you doing? He stepped towards me. I remained frozen in place, fireworks in my head. Luke texted Micah. He wanted to talk. He wanted Micah to meet him at the Starshine Gate. Kevin Gideon dropped Micah off in front of a little white house with big windows. One of the little white houses across Huntington. Luke was close to me. I could see the sweat glistening on his upper lip. His eyes were steely, emotionless. He texted me and Tommy to meet him. He wanted to muddy the water, give himself an alibi. We were playing hide-and-seek. He was burying Micah's body. He never thought we would venture so far into the forest. I regained my ability to move. I turned to run. Luke caught my arm, strong, forceful, vice-like. My eyes rested on his belt, something attached to it, sheathed. Ansley, why are you here? Not a question, a demand. You killed Micah. 
Luke jerked my arm, twisted me to face him. He was smiling, but there was no mirth in his ice-cold gray eyes. He fixed me with his therapist look, his halcyon grin, the look that had dissolved my childhood fears. It sickened me. Ansley, you're fucking delusional. I screamed. I swung my arm, kicked, clawed, slipped on my bad ankle, fell. My backpack slid, landed with a thump. Luke caught me. Then my head spun, then I was eye to eye with coarse gray bark, angry red pain exploding in my nose. Luke's hand clutching my wrists, arm against my back, chin against my shoulder, holding me against the trunk of a tree like he'd held me naked in his bedroom. I knew you'd go yelling your head off, he whispered maliciously. I writhed. Another explosion of pain as Luke slammed me again against the splintering wood. Then he wasn't holding my wrists anymore. His hand was at my neck, clutching something cold and sharp, pressing it to my jugular. The thing on his belt, a hunting knife. You should have gone like Tommy, he oozed. He dealt with his guilt without screwing me over. Fuck, he owed me. So do you. I horse kicked. He pulled his leg out of the way, then jammed his elbow into the small of my back. His knife hand applied pressure. I felt a sting, then something wet dripping down my neck. You were so easy to fuck with. All I had to do was say I saw some boogeyman drag Micah away, and you ate it right up. They thought you were crazy. No one would ever believe anything you said. But then you come back here asking questions, playing ghost hunter with fucking Travis, and I knew it was only a matter of time before you started remembering. Is it possible for a mind to race while at the same time freeze? A blank slate? As Luke forced me against that tree, sharp hunting knife against my throat, that was the sensation that overcame me. Memories, connections, the blended up bits of reality molding themselves together, then coming apart. I have a future, Ansley. You'd better not plan on fucking it up. The Droxies, the shovel discarded somewhere behind me, the Ouija board, the blood filling my bathtub, Micah's voice screaming from behind a locked closet door, the red sweater, the crawl space, Kevin Gideon's zombie form, Matilde, the quest, powdery, grainy, and white. Ansley, why did you have to come home? My weapons. My right hand was free. I jammed it into the pocket of my jacket, felt the sand-like powdered concrete between my fingers. I grabbed a handful. In one movement, I threw it over my shoulder and into Luke's eyes. Luke screamed. The knife was pulled from my throat. I shoved him with my left hand and darted like a rabbit. My foot caught something. I landed hard on my injured ankle. A jolt of pain and the extremity couldn't support my weight. I fell, catching myself with my hands. I rolled. I tripped over Luke's discarded shovel. I was staring at the pile of dirt, into the hole he'd dug, at something gray and white and hard. Luke was regaining his footing. He turned to face me, opal gray eyes twisted. I didn't recognize those eyes. Pure malice. Pure hate. In the light cast by his hanging flashlight, those eyes glowed orange. I pawed behind me, reached into my backpack. With a roar like a freight train, knife in hand, Luke lunged. My hand wrapped around my demon-fighting weapon, my shovel. I didn't think, I didn't feel, I just knew. I swung. February 9th, 2018. They found me at the far end of the forest, wandering aimlessly along the border of Alistair Park and the suburban block behind it. Some nice lady out in her backyard with her dog was nearly given a heart attack by the shocking sight of a bedraggled girl, bleeding and scraped and crying, covered in dirt and spilled soda and powdered concrete, stumbling around on the other side of the fence. I woke the next morning on a cot in a tiny white room. 
For a split second, I basked in the afterglow of the best sleep of my life. Then the events of the previous night crashed through the warm fog and I started to scream. I was in a psychiatric hospital somewhere in Silver Lake, with a way and a serene in its name. The hold was for 72 hours, but they kept me there for five days. It took a while for my body to reacclimate to medication. The doctors and nurses were kind. They helped me wade through the swampy mess of truth and hallucination, and by the time I spoke to the police on the sixth day, I was well enough in touch with reality to be adequately terrified of what was waiting for me outside the hospital walls. But the detectives were understanding. They told me as gently as possible that Luke Anderson was dead. He bled out from two subdural hematomas, one from my blow with the shovel, the second incurred when his head slammed into the ground. There was a nine-inch hunting knife beside him. His fingerprints on the handle, my blood smeared on the blade. I told them he'd attacked me. They'd already come to the same conclusion themselves. There was a whole lot more. Luke Anderson, before he'd met his unfortunate end, had been digging a large hole. Nestled in the dirt, the investigators found child-sized bones, a right arm, hand, fingers, and though tests were still being run, they suspected the gruesome discovery was a piece of the late Michael Wall. A day later, their suspicions were confirmed. The cops then shut down the rest of the park. They'd looked for Micah in the forest 15 years before, but the thick carpet of acorns and leaves and densely packed trees complicated the search, and they'd anticipated a much bigger hole. Now, though, they were better informed. Micah's murderer cut him into pieces, which he'd buried separately. I told them everything I knew. Luke's forceful nature, Tommy's suicide, the rooftop access to atomic videos. They interviewed Alicia and my parents, who'd flown in from Paris on the red eye. The 15-year-old mystery was, tentatively, put to rest. Luke hadn't played in Colonel Lewis's yard with Tommy and me. He'd gone straight from math field day practice to Alistair Park on that fateful Saturday. There, he'd texted Michael Wall, and the two boys met outside the little gate at the south end of the park. They walked deep into the trees, where Luke murdered Micah, then dismembered him. Then he texted his friends, Tommy and me, to meet him in the park to play hide-and-seek, to give himself an alibi. While we were seeking, he was hiding pieces of Micah. His plan fell apart, though, when Tommy and I caught him burying the last piece under what we called the demon tree. So he'd lied to us, told us a monster killed Micah, insisted on it until we believed him. Needing someone to pin his crime on, he snuck through the crawl space above Atomic Videos late at night, utilizing the roof entrance he and Tommy and I had discovered months earlier when we'd snuck into the adults-only section. There, he left Micah's red sweater and inhaler. I was medicated. Tommy was terrified into silence. Kevin Gideon was blamed for Micah's death, and the whole thing was buried. As for motive, well, motive was hard to discern. Luke was posthumously diagnosed as a sociopath, of course. He'd been upset at Micah for ratting him out, getting him suspended, muddying his perfect academic record. He'd had a crush on me, and thought my friendship with Micah was getting in the way. Finally, his anger, his resentment, his genius IQ, and his lack of a conscience came together in a horrifying display of premeditated violence. The conclusion I'd come to was equally senseless and even more unsatisfying. I remembered the look in Luke's eyes as he'd come at me, the orange glow of pure murderous hate. I remembered how he didn't even flinch as he forced me against the tree trunk and put a knife to my throat, twelve hours after flirting with me at Starbucks. He felt no remorse, sure but it was more than that. I remembered his true crime novels, the stories he'd tell us about serial killers, his early interest in psychology, the FBI internship, his mother, empty-eyed and slack-jawed, cultivating bed sores with a tube through her neck, 
Luke, brilliant and betrayed, was unsatisfied with the childish, silent treatment we'd imposed on Micah. He wanted more. Luke wanted to see if he could get away with murder. For a decade and a half, he had. Then I came home, and all those memories I'd buried years before, spurred by the sights and sounds and smells of our youth, began fighting their way to the surface like the bagworms through the hard foam. I talked about Micah too much. I asked the wrong questions. Luke knew sooner or later I would find my way back to the demon tree and remember what I'd seen him do. So he decided to go there first, dig up Micah's bones, and discard the last scraps of his victim elsewhere. I couldn't stay in the little house on Briar Rose Drive. My parents rented a hotel room in Burbank. On August 1st, I moved into my studio apartment. A month later, I started work at Bayside Montessori. My new superiors were extremely understanding of my situation, reassured me that they didn't think I was crazy, expressed sympathy at the trauma I had suffered, and insisted that if I was having a bad day or needed to be accommodated in any way, they were more than willing. I'd expected more nightmares. The bright red bulk of the great bagworm, the swarm of droxies, the antwalkers and their subhuman muttering, and the crawling, decomposing reanimation of Kevin Gideon provided more than sufficient fuel for terror. Though I now knew they were all hallucinations. And then there was Luke. Luke, my best friend, the co-star of my shiny, sun-kissed childhood adventures. Luke, who made me feel calm and protected like no one else could. The memory of his hands running over my body, the lingering taste of his tongue in my mouth. Luke, the boy who'd murdered Micah. He must have figured out I was schizophrenic before I did, then used my propensity for magical thinking against me when Tommy and I discovered his misdeeds. Luke, the man I'd killed. The mental task of reconciling all these incarnations of Luke Anderson was more horrifying than any fantastical boogeyman. But the nightmares didn't come. I stopped lucid dreaming altogether, and I think I know why. I'd completed the quest. I'd found Micah, and I'd slain the demon. I keep my old journal in a drawer. After I was released from the hospital, I paged through it with trembling hands, searching for Matilde's last message. I found it, but it only corroborated how delusional I'd become towards the end, because the handwriting was obviously mine. And for all his lies and manipulation and sociopathy, Luke had been right about one thing. I found a picture of Matilde, the real Matilde Kapersky. Andy, probably inspired by my Instagram message, posted a ton of old childhood photos. Matilde had long blonde hair and she did wear a lot of pink, but her face was different from the face that invaded my dreams. Her cheeks were chubbier, her eyes deeper set and closer together. I then flipped through some of my parents' old pictures, Micah, Tommy, Luke, and me messing around in my backyard. The face I had attached to the Matilde of my dreams was my own. I'd had blue eyes as a kid that darkened to hazel. I'd had freckles. The Matilde who'd given me rhyming clues, guided me, and in the end saved my life was a little piece of my imagination, a clever avatar of my subconscious dispatch to my waking, disordered mind. I miss her a little. I'd have liked to have dreamed about her again, if only to thank her. I'm typing this at my desk. I'm procrastinating more than anything. I should be grading the multiplication worksheets stacked at my elbow. My life has been amazing since I left the Briar Rose house. I have my own place great friends, and at my new psychiatrist's urging, I've been eating healthier and working out. I've never looked or felt better. I'm registered to take the GRE in March. I think I'm going to write a book based on the quest of the four grand adventurers, middle school reading level. It seems a waste to have all these stories in my head and do nothing with them. And while I'm definitely never going off my medication again, 
there are times when reality just doesn't measure up to the contents of my head. For those seven days, June 5th to 11th, 2017, I was a fantasy heroine. I outwitted dark creatures, scaled walls, mixed potions, and saved myself from a monster all too human. Adulthood can't quite compete with childhood fantasy, but I guess I'll have to make do with the memories. February 11th, 2018. I wish I could tell you that was the end of the story, that evil had been slain, a decade-old wrong righted. I wish I was the hero, the fantasy protagonist, riding off into my own well-deserved sunset. But I can't. There's an epilogue. I was going to return to the Briar Rose house one last time before the bulldozers moved in. Well, this morning I drove into town. I met Travis at the mall food court. We hadn't spoken since the day of my confrontation with Luke. He was staying with his parents for winter break, and I thought I owed him an explanation. After a ten-minute round of, oh my gods, are you okays, and I can't believe he'd do that, he broached the subject of our infamous Ouija board experiment. The little ghost girl we were trying to contact. Matilde. I have a confession to make, I said. I was definitely moving the planchard. I didn't realize I was doing it at the time, but the whole corona thing was all me. My false memories. I talked to my dad, and it was actually the Claremont contracts he'd been looking for. Travis shrugged. Yeah, I thought so. But what I was going to say is, I found some more of her drawings, stuffed under loose floorboards of all places. I thought you might want them. He shoved a manila folder towards me. I took it, thinking I'd give the pictures to Andy. He and Alicia were dating again. We chatted for another hour before saying our goodbyes and going our separate ways. Him to visit his boyfriend at work, me to Briar Rose Drive. I nearly drove past the street. I allowed myself a lingering stare into Alistair Park, into the forest. I wondered whether the police had found the rest of Micah's body, buried in pieces in shallow graves confined to the tiny enclosed spaces that had horrified him during his life. As for the forest itself, I no longer felt any fear, just a tangled, uncultivated grove of oak trees. My house crouched amongst the mansions, like an old widow on the bus. Cream-colored stucco walls, chipped blue garage door, huge bay windows, front porch. Colonel Lewis's house had been torn down. I saw through the high chain-link fence they'd erected. The flattening had been done, but the property was yet to be cleaned up. The entire lot now matched the backyard. Piles of splintered planks and eviscerated insulation cozying up with toppled cinder blocks. I was surprised by just how small everything looked. My mattress and box spring was gone, Alicia's bed was gone, the tin table we'd eaten at had been removed, as had the coffee machine and all other indications of my and Alicia's occupation, except the ruined couch and that pile of mail. I sunk onto the couch, and before tackling the yellowing envelopes, I opened the manila folder Travis had handed me. Picture of Mrs. Gutierrez from down the street walking her dog. Picture of two kids at school on the monkey bars. A woman with a baby at Ralph's. Andy playing video games. A child in a red hoodie standing outside my door. A white car parked in front of the house. I think I stared at the picture for a whole minute before I realized what I was seeing. I looked at the date. Then the implications ran me over like a train. My heart racing, limbs numb under the weight of the memories, I stood up. Calmly, slowly, I walked through the kitchen, down the hall, then back around to the living room. I was hallucinating again. The picture wasn't real. It couldn't be. It would be different when I got back to the sofa. No, 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 no. Tommy and me, sitting on my swings. Me, texting Micah. He'd been sending me apology texts for a week straight. Before, I'd only responded with the occasional, shut up or stop talking to me. 
but that Saturday I played nice. I told him to come over, that I wanted to talk. Kevin Gideon dropped him off in front of my house, my little white house with big windows. I collapsed back onto the couch. The picture was exactly the same, Micah in his little red hoodie standing outside my door. The date on the picture? The day he died. Then I noticed something else, an envelope in the pile of junk mail left for me, with no delivery or return address, just my name. Hands shaking, I tore open the envelope and extracted three folded handwritten pages of notebook paper. I unfolded the pages. In the top margin, there was an unflattering cartoon of a chubby, constipated-looking woman with a tight bun and pantsuit. The night before Tommy killed himself, his mother found him at the kitchen table, frantically scribbling in one of his old notebooks, after she could never find the message he wrote. It was unmistakably Tommy's handwriting. I read. Ansley, I hope this letter finds its way to you. I don't know your current address, but the people living in your old house said they'll pass it along when your family is in town. By the time you read this, I'll be dead. I can't live with what we did anymore. I don't know how much you remember or what version. Luke tried to Jedi mind trick you after it all. You were having a breakdown and he was scared you'd tattle. He told you he saw some scary fantasy creature drag Micah into the trees. I guess you bought his bullshit and after that you started having full-blown nightmares and hallucinations. I don't know if his mind games actually worked or if you just believed what you wanted to believe. I couldn't forget, and as much as I've tried to move on, the guilt has been eating me from the inside. I'm not going to go to the cops. That's your choice to make. But I think you have the right to know what really happened on the day Micah died. You and I were playing at your house. You were really mad at Micah because he told your teacher that you'd copied Luke's old biology paper. You were saying he just did it because he was jealous of Luke. I don't know if you realized this, but Micah had a crush on you, but you liked Luke better. You were practically hypnotized when he was around. As we talked, you got yourself worked up really good. You said you wanted to play a joke on Micah. I went with it because I thought what he did was really assholey too. So you texted him and told him to come over to your house. You said you wanted to apologize and be friends again. He'd been trying to apologize all week, so he jumped at the opportunity. He came over. The geeky dude who owned the video store Kevin gave him a ride. You were sweet to him. You led him into your room. The little closet in your room, with the sliding doors, was empty. Your family had packed a lot of stuff because you were moving to Miami as soon as the school year ended. The door was open. You shoved Micah into the closet. I slammed the door shut and jammed it with that wooden rod you had. Micah hated small enclosed spaces. He was terrified. He started screaming and banging on the closet door. The scratches on the back of the closet door. Bang! Bang! Help me, Ansley! Come get me! Ansley, please! I'm sorry! We ignored him. We went to the living room and turned on the TV. After a while, Micah stopped screaming. We heard him breathing really hard, but we didn't make much of it then. And we weren't as concerned as we should have been when he stopped making noise altogether. Finally, about a half an hour later, we thought Micah had suffered enough and went to let him out except he didn't come out. He fell out, fell onto me. He was so, so cold. Then he fell face down on the ground. We rolled him over and I'll never forget his face. His skin was blue. His eyes bulged and just rolled backwards. His skin felt like a dead hamster. He'd had an asthma attack. The stress made him hyperventilate and all the dust in that closet I think you guys had termites, closed his throat. Later, we found his inhaler, wrapped up in his sweater under your bed. 
We were terrified. We didn't know what to do. We killed our best friend. And we were scared to call the cops because we thought we'd go to jail forever. You must have called Luke instead, because he came over, and he was screaming and yelling at you, and you were crying and crying, and I guess he felt sympathetic because he said he'd help us hide the body. Thinking back, it was a project for Luke. He was always so obsessed with true crime, and he wanted to see if he could trick the cops and allow us to get away with murder. He left and came back with his dad's old hunting knife. He dragged Micah's body into the bathtub. He cut off Micah's arm. I'm still haunted by the thought of the knife cutting through tendons, blood pouring out, the nasty crack when Luke snapped the bone. Blood on porcelain, trickling down the drain. We buried the body, then Luke wrapped the detached arm in bubble wrap and stuffed it in his backpack. We walked to Alistair Park. We played hide-and-seek, except instead of hiding, Luke was burying Micah's arm. He said it was to throw the cops off our scent. They'd search the park. They'd find Micah's arm. They'd suspect the rest of him was buried nearby, and they wouldn't go looking around the neighborhood for the body. A boy, digging. Something. Some sort of heap. A pile of clothes, blue and white and red. You were hysterical. I don't know how you held it together for your parents, but you did. A few days later, you found the sweater and inhaler. By that time, everyone was already suspicious of Kevin Gideon, so Luke and I took it all, climbed through an air vent we'd found, and stashed the evidence above the ceiling tiles at Atomic Video. I can't do it anymore, Ansley. The selfless part of me is guilty for what we did. The selfish part is terrified that one day they'll find Micah's body, the rest of Micah's body, and it will all come crashing down. Despite all of this, know I still treasure the memories of our childhood and I've never regretted for a second knowing any of you. Do what you want with this information, but if you do go to the authorities, please, as a last favor to me, keep Luke out of it. He was only trying to help us. I'm sorry, Ansley. I'm sorry for everything. Tommy. I read the letter over and over. I remembered. I remembered it all. I would have screamed. I would have cried. God, I wish I could have cried. But neither tears nor wails would come, just cold, hard pressure, boiling, nerve-numbing resignation, all the lies I told myself splitting open and dripping acid on my skin. And the body. Tommy hadn't revealed where we'd hidden Micah's body, but I knew. It was in Mathilde's rhymes, in her clues, hardwired into my dreams like the blood in the bathtub and the slamming on my closet door. Mathilde had been right. I already knew. Can't make it through the front, so you'll have to climb. Nobody will find what you hid in the slime. The one stanza I hadn't figured out. What we hid in the slime. We'd hidden Micah's body in the slime. Tommy and Luke climbed to hide the sweater. When I'd snuck into what was formerly Atomic Videos, I'd found powdered concrete. Empty eyes and gumless teeth. The weapon waits for you in a room beneath. No, that wasn't it. Mathilde had said he waits for you in a room beneath. The bunker, which my dad filled in with concrete. Twin skeletons on a warm spring day. Among the festering ruins, children laugh and play. Colonel Lewis's house had been the twin of mine, and since we had an underground bunker, it would only make sense that he had one as well. Except he didn't fill his in with concrete. He filled it with dirt and grass and rotting vegetables, turned it into a compost heap. My first clue, the shovel. I'd held that shovel before. My dreams. The stench of rotting vegetable waste. I'd waded in it, knee-deep in slimy carrot heads and moldy lettuce, frantically digging a giant hole. The compost was soft, easy to cut through. The stench would cover the smell of Micah's body rotting. 
I left the letter. I ran through the back door into the gathering dusk. I ran to the chain-link fence. I leaned on it, staring into the junkyard that had once been my playground. The cinder blocks strewn around. The chassis were gone. I breathed in, breathed the acidy, rotten stench. I dug his grave. The boys dragged his body through the hole in the fence. The thick hedges that lined my backyard hid us from the sight of neighbors. We buried him deep. We buried Luke's blood-stained clothes. We smashed Micah's cell phone and buried that, too. If they look at phone records, Luke had said, they'll see you texted him, but not what you texted. Then Luke had an idea. He climbed up a pile of cinder blocks. He started kicking, thrashing, throwing blocks until the pile collapsed under him, over the compost heap and its new secret, covering our tracks. Footsteps, we froze. Colonel Lewis, with his dark glasses and walking stick, charged out his back door. If he hadn't been half-blind, he would have seen me, holding a shovel, my face swollen with tears. He would have seen Tommy shaking, Luke's shifting glance. As it was, all he saw was the three of us playing too rough in his backyard. He yelled that we needed to be more careful, lest we'd break bones. Then he shuffled back into the house. I stood, staring at the weather-beaten cinder blocks that marked my best friend's grave. Then finally the tears came. I'm typing this from the old couch in my old living room. It's fitting, I guess, that I'm starting a new chapter of my life in the place where my life began. I'm not sure what I'm going to do with all this information yet. I could go to the authorities and come clean, turn myself in. I could erase all of this, hop in my car and drive south until the U.S. border's in my rear view. Or I could stay and wait it out. Maybe the construction workers will find Micah's body. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll never connect it to me. For all the mistakes he made, Luke Anderson was right about one thing. I didn't repress my memories. I created false ones. I created my own world. Luke started it, but I was his willing victim. I made monsters. I rewrote history so I wouldn't have to face my guilt. Maybe that night in June, Luke was trying to scare me, not actually kill me. Maybe he really was the heartless psychopath the papers cast him as, and would have rather shut me up permanently than risk an accessory to murder charge hampering his career plans. Maybe he thought I'd try and pin Micah's death solely on him. Or maybe, consciously or otherwise, he came at me with that knife to exact revenge for Micah. To ensure his killer faced justice. No use in puzzling over that now. I've got a lot to answer for and a lot of people to answer too. Tiffany Gideon. Poor Kevin Gideon. I still imagine his rotting, blood-stained face and it brings tears to my eyes. Naomi Wall. Carol Lou. Andy Kapersky. To Tiffany, wherever you are now, I'm sorry your father was branded a child killer for all these years. He was a good man. His video store brought unparalleled joy to my friends and me, and I'll forever regret betraying him. To Tommy's family, I'm sorry I dragged Tommy into my cruel, heartless prank. What happened to Micah was one mistake, one petty Saturday, one joke gone too far, but I'll remember him as he was every other day, funny, kind, carefree, and protective. To Luke's family, no matter the circumstances of our last meeting, Luke was my first love. No one can make me happy quite like he did. And to Micah, if you can read this from heaven, I'm sorry for everything. I'm sorry I exploited your greatest fear and robbed you of the opportunity to grow up. I'm sorry I treated you like an annoyance that I let my crush on Luke get in the way of our friendship. You were the greatest friend I've ever had. 
And I'm sorry for what I said to you on the playground that afternoon. I didn't mean it. I love you, Micah. I will love you until I join you in the afterlife. I cherish every memory of my childhood. I'll never regret knowing Micah or Luke or Tommy. And when I'm sad or angry or in pain, I'll go back to the world we created, where we fought monsters and mixed potions and saved the neighborhood every night before bedtime. I think about our games of hide-and-seek in the park, our covert missions into Colonel Lewis's yard, cheering as Micah effortlessly worked the joystick at Atomic Videos, and I smile. My childhood wasn't perfect, far from it, but it was mine. And the girl I was then, the schizophrenic demon fighter defeating the monsters in my imagination with my three best friends, that was the real me, more than I've been since I left the little house on Briar Rose Drive.